Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Gospel turns the tragedy of our sin into the Lord's finest hour as he makes the holiness lost at the fall possible again. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Living Hope with this sermon entitled Salvation's Fruit, which covers 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're continuing in our, in our, uh, in our sermon series called Living Hope, and in fact, this will be the last part of that sermon series where we've just been looking at the first chapter of 1 Peter, uh, where we have uh, not been taking a, as deep a dive as we could, but we're trying to take somewhat of a deep dive and consider what the Lord has for us in this one chapter. We're calling it Living Hope because of the language that the Apostle Peter uses towards the beginning of the letter, right there in verse 3, where he says that through the mercy of God... We have been born again, those who have believed upon Christ, we have been born again into a living hope. And this hope is being kept for us, is being secured for us in heaven. And this inheritance, the fullness of this hope when we will be realized when Christ returns, and that inheritance is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. And so what I want to do to start us off this, this morning is I want to give us just a recap of the whole chapter as I would... Uh, tried to break it down into segments, memorable segments of how can we think about the progression that the Lord gave us in this chapter about salvation, because that's Peter's main emphasis in this chapter is the salvation of God by the grace of God that gives us the great hope of our God dwelling within us. And so here's how I would break it down. First, we would say um, salvation security would be a, a good way to sum up verses one and two. That right there in verse 2, we see that, uh, that our salvation is secure, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the work of God as displayed in the Trinity. The foreknowledge of God, the blood of Jesus shed for us, and the sanctification of the Spirit. And so we are secure in our salvation. Secondly, uh, it's salvation's hope. That language that we're using again uh, that I just mentioned, of, that Peter uses of living hope, that we have been born again, resurrected from the dead, as it were, spiritually, into this hope that we have. And it's not a wishful hope. Remember, it's not a hope that invites us in to wish. It's a sure hope that invites us in to rest in that finished work of, of Christ. Coming out of the hope that we have because of the finished work of Jesus is joy, salvation's joy. That's where Peter goes in verses six through nine. He says, because of the reality of this salvation, we get to rejoice. And we don't just get to rejoice uh, when things are going well. We rejoice at all times. And he specifically uh, zooms in on rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Remember, this is a group of people that Peter's writing in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, that are uh, either beginning to experience persecution or are already experiencing persecution under the rule and reign of Nero the emperor in first century Rome. And so he's saying even in the midst of hard circumstances, we get to rejoice because why? Because we have a living hope. Because of what we have coming for us when Christ returns in this inheritance. He ends that passage by saying that we love God and because of our love for God, we have an inexpressible joy. 
It's, I imagine Peter sitting there with his pen thinking, how do, how do I even begin to express this joy that we now have because of Jesus? And he just simply concludes, well, I can't. In so many ways, it's inexpressible, but it's there. It's welling up within the, the life and the heart of the Christian. Then you have salvation's wonder. I love how in verses 10 through 12, he just pauses to say, hey, by the way, this salvation that we're talking about, the prophets of old and even the angels marvel at this. They, they long to know how this was going to happen for the ages, and now we know, and you know now being on this side of the cross, the wonder of it all. So we see salvation's wonder. But where we're going to focus today, and this is really the second half of the chapter, is salvation's fruit. So people who are changed by the gospel, people who have been saved, people who have been born again into a living hope, people who know the joy of Jesus and are wondering at the marvel of the gospel, there is a fruit that begins to come out of us. Jesus talks about this in John 15, where he says that if you you abide in me, there will be, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So if Christ is in us, as Peter has laid out for us so far in, in the first part of the chapter, if Christ is in us, then what comes out of us? What's the fruit that emanates from the life of a Christian? Now, one of the things that Peter's going to do as we read it, you'll see it, is he's going to lay forward, forth for us, for the Christians, some things that are presented without option. There's no alternative, and, it's, and, and he presents it very clearly without confusion, that this is what marks the life of a Christian. And it got me thinking, what's the sin nature within us? What's the sin nature within me? Well, one of the things that comes out as a part of that sin nature that we battle, even as Christians, is that there are many things that God presents and even the world presents as in terms of things that are legal and illegal and whatever, just accepted and not accepted. There are many things in life that are not optional, but I like to treat them as optional. I like to treat them as optional. And it's dependent a lot of times of whether I do them or not do them is just based on do I feel like doing it? Is it comfortable? Is it easy? Is it convenient? And so, for example, um, stop signs. Some of us treat stop, stop signs as optional, right? Maybe we don't blaze through them, but we roll through them. And it's always funny to me how oftentimes I will prepare a sermon, and then later that week, after I've written the sermon, something will happen that fits perfectly into what I'm trying to say. And so yesterday, we're all loaded up in the car, and we're going to one of my daughter's basketball games, and uh, we're driving through this little part of town, and I'm at a four-way stop. No one's there, and I kind of roll through the stop sign. And as I roll through the stop sign, Rachel says, oh, there's a cop over there. <laughs> to which I thought, well, that would have been nice to have known five seconds ago. <laughs> so I roll through the stop sign. Now, thankfully, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if he was looking down at his computer, his phone, whatever, but he didn't come after me. But sometimes we treat stop signs as optional. Stop if you feel like it. Treat it like a yield sign if there's no other cars. Now, in Atlanta, my goodness, there are many who treat red lights as optional. (laughs) If it's just turned red, but the intersection is not happening yet with cars going through, then you go, right? That's how many treat it. 
And that may not be you, but I'm going to just say that probably most of us, I'm not going to say all because there are some of us that are pure in heart, <laughs> but most of us most certainly treat yellow lights as optional in the sense of they mean slow down, but we interpret that as a different option, speed up and get through the intersection. It's about to turn red, go, floor it, right? But beyond traffic, okay, I spent a lot of time talking about traffic right then. Kids, if you have kids, you know the nature of the heart of a child. You tell them to do something and they want to treat it as optional, right? I have small humans, smaller humans that live in my house of the teenage variety. They really like to treat things as optional. Clean up your room. Come back an hour later, room's not cleaned up. Why didn't you clean it up? Get to the heart of the matter, bottom line is I didn't want to. Well, did I ask you if you wanted to? Did I say clean up your room if you'd like to? You can just choose to do it or not. No, I, I told you clean up your room. It's not an option. Some people over time, as we've watched in different ways, some people treat reporting taxes as optional, right? Which with it comes great consequences. Peter's going to present something to us in this letter that is not optional. And his holiness. One of my favorite authors is this guy named Jerry Bridges who wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. The third chapter of that book is entitled Holiness is Not an Option. For the, for the born again believer, for the person who has believed upon Christ and Christ is living in us, he has called us to holiness. Now that doesn't mean perfection in the sense that we will be perfectly holy one day in, in the presence of God when, he, when we're in heaven with him. But now in this body of sin and death that we fight against every day, there's still a pursuit of holiness. There's still a longing for holiness. There's still this reality of that if I know Jesus, I long to be more like him. And, and who is he? Well, he's holy. And so how often how often do we take the call of the holiness of God as optional? And if we dig down and if we're honest, what's really often at the bedrock of that optional choice for us of be holy, it's because of convenience, it's because of comfort, and it's just because of desire. I just don't want to. And what Peter presents to us, as we'll see here in just a moment, is that God doesn't give us that option. As we sum up the chapters, we look at the whole chapter of verses, I'm sorry, not the chapter, this, this passage from verses 13 through 25. I wanna give you three sentences because we're biting off a lot today. And what I'm about to do just in, in the next 20 minutes, a little longer maybe perhaps, is we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna cover a lot. So I want you to, to, to mentally focus, be there with me. But I want to try to sum it up for you in three sentences, and then I'll break those down even more for you as we dig in. First is this. In verses 13 through 16, this is what we'll see. We'll see that with clear and active minds, hope-filled Christians devote themselves to holiness. With clear and active minds, hope-filled Christians devote themselves to holiness. In the next four verses, 17 through 21, we're going to see walking in reverent fear Christians hope in God as they center their faith on the cross of Christ. 
We walk in reverent fear, we hope in God, and we center our faith on the cross of Christ. And then the last few verses of the text, we're gonna see that anchored in the imperishable seed of the word of God, Christians love one another deeply from the heart. Now, we could condense that even a little bit more into one overarching main idea sentence that would simply say this. Changed by the gospel, Christians become hope-filled and holy, cross-centered and fearful. Now, that's not a scared fearful. That's a reverent fearful. And word-anchored and loving. Changed by the gospel. That's key. That's key. Changed by the gospel. Christians become hope-filled and holy, cross-centered and fearful, uh, and fearful, word-anchored and loving. So let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Another translation says, love each other deeply from the heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers falls, flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless it unto us. So let's start with that first one that I gave you, hope-filled and holy, hope-filled and holy. This is who we are. Salvation's fruit produces a people who are filled with hope and holy like their, like their Savior. It's really important to remember what Peter has done here. The, uh, the indicative always precedes the imperative in the scriptures, the indicative of the, of the gospel. This is what God has done for us. Peter has laid out for us so very beautifully in the first 12 verses, the greatness, the magnificence of God's grace, the joy and the hope that we have because we are saved. And so having established that, having said, you are secure in your salvation, you have hope in your salvation. You have joy in your salvation. Wonder at it. Marvel at it, what God has done. And as a result of Christ in you now, now that you've been born again and the Spirit of God dwells within you, now, through the Spirit of God, this is how you live. This is the fruit. 
If we flip those, if we ever start in verse 13 with our Christian walk and we ignore verses one through 12, in other words, if we don't start with the gospel, but we start with the imperative, start with this is how you live, then it'll slowly and sometimes even more quickly become a heavy burden upon us, performance-driven morality, religiosity, that we think that the pursuit of holiness is really about getting God's favor, getting his approval, warranting his love. And what Peter has done here and what the scriptures do time and time again is say, no, 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 it's the gospel. It's the finished work of Jesus that approves of you fully and completely. You have the love of God in all of its immeasurable significance. You are more loved than you could ever imagine. You are approved of through the finished work of Jesus and the blood of Christ painted over the doorpost of your heart, as it were. And so because you are fully accepted and loved in him, through his life in you, this is how you live. It's salvation's fruit. It's not salvation's obligation. It's salvation's fruit. And so Listen to some of the language that he uses. He starts off by saying, therefore, that's important, therefore, in light of the gospel, in light of the salvation, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. He, he essentially repeats himself right off the bat, and he's focusing in on the mind. He's saying, if there's going to be holiness in our lives, and if we are going to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Christ is is revealed to us in the second coming, then it has to start with how we think. And this phrase in the Greek where he says, preparing your minds for action, in the Greek, it means girding up the loins of your mind. We go, okay, that's weird. What does that mean? Well, in first century uh, life, these men would have worn long flowing robes, tunics, where if they wanted to run or if they wanted to, to work in such a way that they were free from the hindrance of that robe, they would gird up the loins, meaning they would take the long flowing part of the robe and they would tuck it in their belt so that their legs were unhindered. So what Peter is literally saying here is he's using a, a, a common phrase, colloquialism in that day and time to say, uh, preparing your minds for action, meaning gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, he's saying this, just because grace means that there's no effort in our salvation, it doesn't mean that there's no effort in the way in which we walk with God, in the sense of that we, uh, we are fully saved and he will sanctify us, but there is effort in that, in the sense of that we need to dig deep, we need to get to work in the sense of loving God and loving others and pursuing holiness. Not because it gets us more favor with God, but because we have the full favor of God. So he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Let nothing hinder your mind as you put it to work. It's interesting. Paul uses similar language in Romans 12. Perhaps they had talked about this together. Perhaps they had seen what each other had written at different times. But Paul in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So right after Peter has said what he said about the mind, he says in verse 14, so as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Same thing Paul said. So what they're saying is, what are we letting come into our mind? And how are our minds active and clear as it pertains to holiness? 
We know this to be true. We, you've experienced it in your life. If you've walked for Jesus for any length of time, you know how important the thought life is. That what we allow ourselves to dwell on at the mind level, what we allow ourselves to think on based on what we allow ourselves to even see, determines, therefore, what sinks to our heart and drives how we live. Now, Christianity is not only a mental exercise by any means. It's much more than that, but it's not less than that. We have to be critical thinkers, protecting and taking captive the thoughts that we have and pursuing holiness in our minds. So with clear and active minds, we are hope-filled, first and foremost. Even before we pursue holiness, we're hopeful. We're setting our hope, as he says here, we're setting our hope fully on the grace. What is the grace? The salvation the gospel of grace that will be fully revealed to us at the coming of Christ. So no matter what the circumstances may be in our life, because of how we're thinking with clear and active minds, it produces hope within us that regardless of what we're walking through, our hope is set fully on the grace that will be revealed in Jesus. And then he progresses from there and he says, so in light of all that, be holy. Pursue holiness. Among God's characteristics as he, as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, none is more significant nor more emphasized than his holiness. Old Testament, New Testament writers talk about his holiness more than any other attribute of God. Holiness is, it is, it is sinlessness, but it's much more than that. It's it's being set apart, it's being other, it's being unique. And it is unique to the Lord, even more so than the angels. The angels are sinless, but they're not holy in the sense of we're not gather, we're not gonna gather around the, the angels and sing holy, holy, holy. But as we get the picture of Revelation, what it's gonna be like on that day, we're gathering around the throne of God, singing incessantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And if he has rescued us to be like him, that means that we are to be like him in pursuit of his holiness, to desire it, to long for it because of the transforming work that he's done in our hearts. I mentioned Jerry Bridges earlier. I want to read this quote to you from him. It's a little bit lengthy, but I love how he connects together what we've already talked about in this sermon series. He talks about how the hope that we have as a result of our salvation and the joy that we have actually fuels our obedience in pursuit of holiness. Listen to what he says. He says, the Christian living in, in disobedience also lives devoid of joy and hope. But when he begins to understand that Christ has delivered him from the reign of sin, when he begins to see that he is uh, united to him who has all power and authority and that it is possible to walk in obedience, he begins to have hope. And as he hopes in Christ, he begins to have joy. In the strength of this joy, he begins to overcome the sins that have so easily entangled him. He then finds that the joy of a holy walk is infinitely more satisfying than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Did you hear that? He then finds that the joy of a holy walk is infinitely more satisfying than the fleeting pleasures of sin. But to experience this joy, we must make some choices. This is the active mind part. We gotta make some choices with this. 
We must choose to forsake sin, not only because it is defeating to us, but because it grieves the heart of God. We love God. We don't want to grieve his heart. And so our minds, active and clear, we begin to make choices to forsake sin and pursue holiness. Why? Because we've tasted and we've experienced the joy and the hope of our salvation in Jesus. I've often said that the most miserable people in the world are not those who don't know Jesus. The most miserable people in the world are those that do know Jesus but are not pursuing holiness. Those that do know Jesus but are walking in disobedience. Those are the most miserable people because they know. They know the goodness of God. They've tasted and have seen how good he is and how satisfying he is, but they are failing in the battle against everyday flesh. And they feel, they feel the dissatisfaction even more oftentimes than a non-believer. And so salvation's fruit, first and foremost, is holiness, is hope-filled and holy. But secondly, it's cross-centered and fearful. Cross-centered and fearful. Let's start on the fearful front. Read again verse 17. It says this. And if you call on him as father, which we do, then we know also that he judges. Okay? Now, that's not a, that's not a fear and trepidation thing in terms of dread. It's a reverent respect thing that you would have for an earthly father who loves you well, but who also disciplines. So we walk with fear. And we conduct ourselves with fear throughout the entire time of our exile, meaning our whole life on this earth before we're in heaven. It's called exile here. That's what we established in the first few verses. And that that entire time, we walk in fear. Not paralyzing fear, not dread, but reverent awe of the power of God. When you watch in the scriptures, and you begin to watch every time someone is in the presence of God, it is reverent awe and fear immediately. And the scriptures, they talk a lot about the fear of God, and we don't really know what to make of that. Does that mean I'm just to tremble all the time? Well, no, but it means that we are consciously living our lives in the presence of God. We're consciously aware that there is a God who is a loving father, but who also is the almighty judge and holds us accountable. There's not fear of his wrath, but there's respect for his discipline. Did you catch that? If you're in Christ, there's not fear of his wrath. You're no longer under the wrath of God. You're under the blood of Jesus. But there is respect for his discipline, just as, if, as it were for a loving father, but even more because he's our perfect loving father. And all of this is rooted. He brings it immediately back to the cross. He says, okay, yes, live your lives for the rest of the time of your exile in fear, but remember the cross. Remember what you've been redeemed from. Remember what you've been rescued from by the precious, imperishable blood of Jesus. He says, you haven't been rescued by precious metals. He didn't buy you with gold or silver. He bought you with the most infinitely valuable thing that has ever existed in the history of all creation, and it's the blood of Jesus. And he sprinkled you with it, and he's covered you with it so that you can stand before God, even in all of your insufficiencies and incapabilities and all of your sin and all of your failures and stand before him one day, and he judge you, yes, but he not condemn you. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. 
but he will receive you with gladness. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because he is the one who has redeemed us from the tyranny and the oppression of sin by the precious blood of Jesus. Lastly, Christians are word anchored and loving. Word anchored and loving. Before I go there, I, I, I want to read you this real quick. I just saw in my notes. This is what I wrote down when I was processing through this passage. I, I wrote just a little journal entry. So this is going back to the cross-centered and fearful. So bear with me for a moment. I want you to hear this. It won't be on your screens. This is just something to listen to. I just wrote down two things that we don't talk about enough in modern Christianity that the biblical authors talk about a great deal. The fear of the Lord and holiness. But if we're going to talk about them, we must do so responsibly and in the right biblical context. We must join them with the precious blood of Christ. Without the blood of Christ, don't miss this, without the blood of Christ, the fear and holiness of God becomes paralyzingly terrifying. But with the blood of Christ, the fear of the Lord becomes necessary motivation for obedience, and the holiness of God becomes the desire of our hearts. So the blood of Christ changes everything. Now, lastly, word anchored and loving. Born of the imperishable seed of the word of God, Christians love one another deeply, deeply from the heart. I've shared this with you before. I won't belabor it. I just want us to keep thinking about why is it? Why is it that in the past couple of years, with all that we've been dealing with as a people, that the church, Big C, the church in America has struggled so much with this right here? We struggled so much with being anchored in the word and loving each other deeply from the heart. That might be a good question to sit with with the Lord. If you have found yourself more filled with anger rather than love for your fellow Christian and for the world at large, sit with the Lord and simply just say, why, God, why is that true of me? Why do I have such a hard time loving people, even in my own church? Jesus said very plainly, he said, this will all men know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And then his apostles, Peter, John, Paul, James, as they wrote the scriptures, they emphasized this over and over and over again. If we know him, and if we are pursuing holiness in him, then we will be a people who express his immeasurable love. And Jesus presses it in all the time in his ministry, all the time, that it's easy to love people who are like you and who love like you and love what you love. But it's an entirely different thing to love your enemies. And so he calls us to that. He says, love your enemies. Far too often in the Christian faith, at least in modern years, we have allowed disagreement with one another to neuter our love for one another. 
We disagree over opinion level issues and persuasion level issues, not conviction level issues. And those disagreements on the peripheral of our faith have led us to not love one another well. And what God would say in this text is simply this. The Christian who is pursuing holiness is the Christian who will express love. And so if we have a lack of love, we have a lack of holiness. If we have a lack of Christ-centered and motivated love, then we have a lack of Christ-centered and motivated holiness. So in other words, we can see the lack of love in our lives and we can dig down to the root of unholiness. I'll close with this illustration that I like to bring up and I'll hit it quickly this morning because I've hit it in more detail in the past. But I like to bring it up. I probably have brought it up once or twice a year for the last several years. And for me, I, I don't know, maybe it resonates with you, but for my own heart, it helps me. It helps me put into proper place the motivation, the gospel motivation for obedience, for holiness. And it's the story that comes to us from the ancient story of the, uh, the Odyssey and the main character of Odysseus. And Odysseus has gone off to war and he's won the battle, but he's been away from his wife, his wife and kids and he's trying to get home. But he's been warned that on the way home, there's going to be lots of things that will come his way that might keep him from reaching home. And the one that has been warned the most is that he's going to have to pass through this thing called the Narrows. And in the Narrows are the Sirens. These visually and more, even more significantly, audibly alluring creatures that because of the song that they sing, make you turn your ship into the rocks and crash upon the rocks because you so desire to go to the sirens who are singing the song. And no man has ever resisted the song of the sirens. So Odysseus is warned about this, and so he says this. He says, men, talking to his crew on the ship, put wax in your ears so that you don't steer the boat, steer the ship towards the rocks where the sirens are. But for me, I want to know what the song is. So here's what we're going to do. Tie me to the mast of the ship. And no matter how much I beg and plead for you to cut me loose so that I can go to the sirens, don't let me. But I want to hear what's so great about the songs. And so they do. And they survive. They make it through. But the entire way, Odysseus is begging, please cut me loose. Please let me go. The song is so good. And I know that it will devour me. I know that when I go over there, we'll crash on the rocks and those sirens are not what they say they are. And their song is not lovely. Their song is ultimately evil. I know that, but oh my goodness, I want to go so bad. A couple centuries after the Odyssey was written by Homer, there was an addition that was made and the author is unknown, but it was a story just like Odysseus's that was added. And it was about this character named Jason. Jason's taking the same track with a crew. But instead of putting wax in the ears of his crewmen, and, and instead of tying himself to the mast of the ship and saying, don't let me go no matter how much I, I cry and scream and beg, he brings along with them as a part of the crew the greatest musician in all the world who plays the most beautiful melody on the harp that anyone had ever heard. And at the time that they're approaching the Narrows and they know that the siren songs are about to start, they say, they turn, he turns to the musician and says, play your song. 
Play it as loud as you can possibly play it. Drown out the siren songs with the melody of a better song. And so they pass through the narrows, this time not just surviving, but rejoicing. Because they've tuned their ears to a greater melody than anything the sirens could ever sing. And I always come back to that because oftentimes the motivation for our obedience in the Christian life feels more like Odysseus than it does Jason, does it not? Where we have tied ourselves to the mast of performance, of religiosity, and what we really want is we want the siren songs of the world. We want the siren uh, songs of the alluring nature of sin, and we say, I want it, I want it, but I know and we grit our way towards a path of obedience and we don't thrive and we don't rejoice, but we survive. And God keeps telling us over and over and over again, I've given you a better song. It's the song of the gospel. It's the song of grace. It's the song of Jesus. Tune your heart to the better song and you will live way more like Jason than you do Odysseus. You will stay free and mobile upon the ship of life, and you will sing along with Jesus the better melody, and the song of the sirens will go away. It's like we've sung in the church for years and years and years, where we say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, would you help us? Would you help us be a people who because of the gospel of grace in our lives, because of the joy of our salvation in Jesus, we have tuned our heart to the better song, to the better song of you, O Christ, that motivates, that pushes us forward and motivates us towards a, a pursuit of holiness, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Oh God, we pray that we would indeed be a people who are hope-filled and holy, who are cross-centered and reverently fearful, and who are word-anchored and loving. Would you do that in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.